Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be famous? Buckle on up as you are about to learn about the fame game and perhaps how to earn your own 15 minutes of fame from the manager and publicist to the mega famous. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast and get ready to be inspired, motivated and achieve massive success. And now your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today has earned global recognition as a highly regarded entertainment manager, brand consultant, and publicist who has represented Richard Pryor, Bette Midler, Paul McCartney, the Bee Gees, Muhammad Ali, Caitlyn Jenner, Quincy Jones, Vanessa Williams, the Commodores with Lionel Richie, the Jacksons with Michael Jackson, and a whole lot more A-listers. He is the author of the book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Ramon Hervey. Thank you so much, Eli. It's a pleasure to uh, be on your show and uh, look forward to speaking to you. Well, thank you so much for joining me because fame is something I think almost every human being has thought of in one way or another. You know, a lot of people, if not the majority of people, probably want to be famous. There are others, like my wife, she has no interest whatsoever in being famous. So you got all types. Uh, what I was very curious, you know, you have been around and worked with a lot of very famous people. And in your uh, great book, you say that over four decades, you have invested your professional career and livelihood in playing the fame game. Why do you call it a game? And why do you choose that word for part of your book title? Well, you know, I was trying to decide how, uh, you know, your your background is in, in motivation and whatever. And I, I needed to find a motivation and you know, people have been telling me for years, you should write a book, you should write a book, you know, you have great stories. And I didn't want to do a memoir, find sort of a pocket for what, what could I really contribute that could be educational, uh, informative, enlightening, that I could talk about my clients and not do like a scandalous, uh, you know, the book is not about, you know, uh, everyone's uh, weaknesses, but to focus on the strengths and the strategies that go into any game is uh, it's only it's you no one knows for sure. And that's the thing about fame. There is no shortcut way to become famous. And that's one thing that I learned over 40 years is that fame is one. It's not a destination. It's an accolade. And it usually comes as an as a output of being successful. And so to me, I thought, well, you know, when every time when I have thought about fame, you 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 put together a, a plan, a, a strategy. And, you know, every sport, I was an athlete, you know, I played football, baseball, and there is no guarantee. There's no guarantee to any game. And that's what makes it kind of interesting. And for me, as coming from behind the scenes was to really, you know, there's so many failures in our business, and there, but there are victories, and it's hard to sustain it because 
fame is also fleeting. So to me, that's the game part of it, is that it is unpredictable. And no matter how how great you are, how famous you are, whether you're the rock who's been the most famous entertainer in the world for over three years, I think going on four years, he's had failures. Everyone has failures. So the question is, you do your best to play the game. Um, and you hope to win, but it's it's not guaranteed. So that's that's the game part of it. And just that, and you know, I did a little research or a lot of research just on the approach to fame. There's a mathematician named Samuel Arpson, and he's also an author and a scientist. And he did uh, uh, he came up with a formula for what percentage of people in the world actually are considered famous. And it's he did a formula by over 7 billion people in the world. And through Wikipedia, you know, they have very uh, restrict, uh, they have very, uh, or the, you know, to get a Wikipedia page, you, you have to reach a certain amount of uh, uh, popularity. And they judge you by that. It's by the amount of media coverage you get and everything like that. So he divided that by that, by the 7 billion, over 7 billion, it's 0.0065 people in the world are famous. So that's less than 1% of the people in the world do become fame. So that just kind of explains to you how difficult it is. But there's also a lot of very successful people in the world who never become famous. And I believe in, you know, one of the things that, you know, fame and success don't come with a warranty. Um, and that if you strive to be successful, you can have a great deal of happiness and joy in your life and not ever become famous. You know, a lot of people think that it takes a lot of luck to be famous. And that brings me to a famous quote by Branch Rickey, who actually helped break the color line in baseball, was the, uh, you know, of course, the uh, guy who ran the Brooklyn Dodgers and brought Jackie Robinson into baseball. And he said that luck is a residue of design. So I find that most famous people are incredibly talented. Uh, I'm sure they've had some luck uh, along the way, but I don't think luck was a thing that defined their success. Uh, I think that their, uh, you know, greatness defined their success and the luck just happened to find a way to them. There, there's a thing about people who are really good at what they do and, uh, and follow all the rules. And then the luck seems to find the way their way, kind of like the lower of attraction. What do you think about that? I think luck is, is, again, luck is part of every game. There is a certain amount of luck involved in what I do as a, as a manager, as a publicist, whatever. A lot of it is timing. I think timing is luck, is a form of luck. So depending on when you release a product, um, if something happens, you know, spontaneously at the same time that makes your product more valuable or more exploitable, that's luck. That's something that you couldn't have planned for. So uh, I do think that luck does does play a role in uh, strategizing and planning for potential success of a, of a record or an album or, you know, uh, for example, uh, one of the biggest when Starbucks first started releasing albums, um, they're, you know, they, they didn't, they created, uh, pretty much an independent distribution system for selling records in their stores. And their first big record was Ray Charles. And it was a, a record that, um, they didn't, they didn't know it was going to be big or not, but Ray Charles died 
while they had released the record and that put the record through the roof and it sold it became a multi-million uh, platinum record because of that death now whether you call that luck or not but that would be perceived as luck you know for him to pass away at a time where they're introducing a whole new platform of distribution and it really skyrocketed and if you look at their history they're not in records anymore but it it jettisoned their whole uh, business portfolio in terms of opening up and tons of big artists ended up re trying to release records through starbucks because of the ray charles record and it led to the movie that happened uh, on him, Ray, that um, Jamie Foxx ended up starring in. So it, it it really made his legacy so much bigger than it might have been otherwise. That's a fascinating story for sure. So, uh, Ramon, you know, famous people are idolized, you know, they're immortalized. It's a very intoxicating reason for people to pursue fame. How do you feel about fame in general? Do you feel that the pursuit of fame is mostly a positive goal? No, I don't think it's a it's necessarily a positive goal, but I think that if you it really depends on on your as you know, your philosophical approach of what you think fame is. And the problem is is that most people don't know what fame is until they've already become famous. There's no school that you can go to to learn to become famous. Mm. And by the time you become famous, you're not really even sure if you if this is what you wanted. And you find that a lot of stars do uh, change their mind about what they thought fame was going to be, or they find different ways to manage it and, and to integrate it into their regular life. You know, a lot of people don't like all the baggage that comes with, with being famous. You know, the lack of privacy, um, the fact that you're being judged by by everything and and anything that you do, particularly now with the advent of social media since you know the, uh, 2013, mass consumption and social media. So I think fame has really changed the perception of fame, how you get it, how you sustain it, how it influences your life, has really uh, morphed into a whole different experience or since the emergence of mainstream social media. You know, when you look at, you know, fame's been around for a long, long time. You know, historically, it goes back to Egypt and, the, uh, you know, uh, church uh, making people famous, you know, to get them to be to be committed to them. You know, it started with religion and and gods and everything was to make people feel a level elevated more than the common person. So it has been around for a long time. But I think uh, in my uh, time on this planet, it has definitely changed uh, dramatically over the last 10 years. Well, I think, you know, when you look at a, an example like um, Princess Diana, you know, uh, who uh, unfortunately had the paparazzi chasing her, you know, and it led to uh, sort of, unfortunately, her tragic death. Uh, there is, you know, sometimes a heavy price to for fame and certainly one of the uh world famous people that you represented richard Pryor, you know certainly uh achieved uh, uh the uh, as high a level of success as you can possibly achieve as a comedian yet unfortunately he had his demons uh and at the height of uh you know his fame uh there was a, a, a attempted uh, suicide and so uh can you elaborate on that famous incident which almost killed him that he later confessed to as a suicide attempt well, I worked with Richard a couple of different times. So the first time that I worked with him, he, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I mentioned in the book, 
I was a consigliatory person. <laughs> I think that I ended up, uh, you know, managing all of his missteps and he needed someone to sort of uh, protect him from the media as opposed to, you know, as a young guy, I was a vice president at Rogers and Town, a major PR company at the time. And he was probably the number one black entertainer in the world at that time. And he picked me. Um, he I, his manager called and said he wanted to wanted me to represent him and they wanted to make sure that I was the guy that was going to represent him. And I was, you know, I was over the moon happy with this. And uh, why this. you? Yeah. How did they evolve well, the people know, on the by planet? The time that Richard came into my life, I, you know, I had, to, I had, you know, earned my way a little bit. I had a little bit of a, I had a pretty good reputation going for me. I've been very fortunate. You know, I'd already worked with Bette Midler. I'd worked with Paul McCartney. I'd worked with a lot of people. And so he came to me at a time when I was really, you know, very close to the top of my game. And um, I got very excited because I thought there was so much that I could do for him. You know, like, uh, and when I finally got next to him and learned his habitual habits and um his downfalls and whatever i realized that that you know your perception of what you think you can it's first of all fame is it, it's only it's that person you don't you know what whether your work whatever your role is whether you're a manager agent or whatever you're you're just a conduit to help service it's a, i'm in the service industry and all the capacities that you mentioned earlier whether i'm a consultant uh, a publicist or a manager, I'm performing a service. I get paid to to help them do whatever it is that they want to do. So it's not my fame, it's really their fame. And their fame, they're going to have a, everyone's going to have a different perception of what their fame is. And Richard, I think, always felt guilty about his fame and had a hard time adjusting to the fact that he was treated special um, and he he didn't think that he could live up to the level of fame that he had achieved. I think it was always a, uh, and I think that 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 created a uh, an albatross around his neck, and that maybe helped made him uh, rely on more substance to sedate and calm himself. And and you know, so he had drug and alcohol problems. Um, by the time that that suicide thing had come. Uh, I just think that he had, you know, reached the point where he didn't want to be that person anymore. And I, at that, at the very moment when he did that, I wasn't representing him. But then he brought me back and he did a film called Giorgio Dancer's Life is Calling, which was his first directorial uh, position. You know, he directed his own, you know, bio film. And um, in that film, um, that's when he did finally admit after the fact that he um, did try to commit suicide for the longest time. He said he didn't. He said it was an accident. But one of the things about Richard Pryor that I thought is very unique, and I've never met any other famous person, usually when you have a, uh, a crisis uh, where your persona is being um, compromised or marginalized by something that you did. It could be something that you self-inflicted. It could be something that uh, an accident happened, whatever it is, you know, uh, he found a way to always market his vulnerability and he never lost his audience no matter what he did. 
you know, they always ingratiated and loved him and showed him uh, no matter how destruct, self-destructive he was. And he did it by a concert film. He did it by recording albums. All of his comedy focused on all of his uh, missteps. And it was, it was, if you really look at his history, all of the, you know, he did maybe four films. I actually produced, I was the one that, that helped create the very first Richard Pryor Live in Concert film. And in that film, he had just, about a month before that, he had shot the tires off his, uh, his wife and him had a major row and she was trying to leave their house and he shot the tires, all four tires on the Mercedes. And he goes, well, you're not going to leave in that car. And then he put that in his comedy. And he did this uh, in a, on a cycle all the time, if you look at his history. And that I always marveled at that, that he was able to find a way to, you know, usually in my role as a crisis manager or whatever, you would tell celebrities to walk away from it, put closure, you know, put it behind you. Don't put it, feed it to the media. And give them something else to to write about you, you know, so that you can move on with your life. But he did it the exact opposite. And it was very successful for him. Yeah, he kind of broke the mold, right? And he used yeah. that for, for, for the fodder footer for the mill, as they say. <laughs> yeah, and I've never seen it repeated. I don't know anyone else who has was as successful as him in marketing, you know, all of the things that he did wrong. Well, you know, what's interesting is um, in order to get, I guess, to the height of fame, you have to have, I assume, a, a pretty uh, healthy ego. Uh, if you don't have that healthy ego, then you may suffer for that uh, from, I guess, what you're alluding to. What Richard may have suffered, uh, suffered from like a somewhat of an imposter syndrome, you know, where you feel like uh, I really deserve all these accolades and all this level of success, you know, that I've gotten. And, you know, then you struggle, like, how do I handle this? And then you you turn it over to to uh, to drugs or something else as a defense mechanism to escape, which is, uh, you know, very, very interesting. And so uh, I, I assume you've met some people with some really strong egos and personalities who who actually did believe in their own hype, right? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a cutting, uh, it's a double-edged sword. I do believe that you have to have a big ego and you have to have a, a huge amount of self-confidence to be successful in entertainment. But at the same time, uh, and what, it, what I tried to express in the book is and share is a humanity aspect that fame is to me is, is a, it's like an emotional response to how people are responding to you. And so, but your famous people are no different than regular people. You know, we, you know, famous people bleed, they, they cry, you know, they laugh, they have families, they, you know, they have regular work hours, you know, um, particularly if you do Broadway, um, you know, they, they go to work, they have to come home, they have to find balance in their lives. But when you add fame into it, different people take that in different directions. Some people think that fame entitles them to be treated more special than other people. And when you start to believe the hype, then it can really, um, you know, it can really create an imbalance in your psychological belief of who you are. You lose a sense of yourself. And that's why I think a lot of people, uh, just like alcohol or anything else, you know, any any kind of thing that emotionally causes imbalance in your psyche uh, can be dangerous. And it's not everybody can deal with it the same way. So some people can enjoy 
and appreciate their fame and other people, it, be, it can become very self-destructive because once they lose it, they don't know how to live. They don't, they're not able to manage their life without it. And that's everyone, every famous person I ever met, they had a different path to get it. And they all lost some level of fame at some point. I don't know any person, whether it's Bette Midler, Quincy Jones, Muhammad Ali, uh, all the people that I've been fortunate enough to work with, they all went through lulls in their careers where they had to reinvent or do something to try to regain the level of success that they once had. It's just, it's a natural, it's just natural. It's just like a, anyone in your own, you know, what, regardless of your job, you go through ebb and flow where you can be really successful and then you hit a wall and then you have to recalibrate and what can I do to motivate myself to you know i'm not really where i want to be or this field is not what i want to do and you see you know celebrities going from one genre to another you know it, it's it's just one of those things where you don't really know again until you're really in it and if i i wish there was a way that you know i used to tell people like if there was a a mechanism uh, to get make people fame famous, like a serum or something, or you could take a pill. <laughs> five simple rules, right? <laughs> yeah, five six things that you do. That's what I would be selling because everyone would be trying to buy it. it with, with social media, you know, everyone that's given everyone an opportunity to be an entrepreneur and make them feel that they can reach fame, uh, some level of fame. But the reality is, with even with social media, only one percent of the people on social media have over a million followers, which is the highest level of social media strata, you know. So it's just it's just one of those things where it's always going to be much harder than most people realize. And then they don't, you just don't know if you're going to be suited for it. It's just the same people get married and they realize, well, this is not for me. You know, it's the same thing with fame. It's, you just don't know until you're there. Well, you know, Ramon, you've given us some sobering statistics through Wikipedia and the odds of actually becoming famous. I was reading a book recently and it uh, talks about famous people who, uh, because of, of being famous, you know, uh, there were, you know, unfortunate things that, uh, that made their lives uh, also very challenging, you know, and it focused on uh, John Lennon, of course, and uh, who unfortunately was shot in 1980 and killed. Uh, and then uh, talked about Elvis and his downward spiral, you know, with drugs and, uh, you know, a uh, similar story maybe to Richard Pryor, where, you know, he's just on overload and, you know, couldn't handle it all. Uh, and then it also talked about Muhammad Ali, of course, uh, who who suffered as well uh, in, in the end days and throughout his life. Um, so, you know, but nevertheless, no matter what we're going to say, how uh, the difficult the odds are and all the people who've been challenged are some people who are still going to say, I want to be famous. And so you wrote this book and, you know, the uh, you have that subtitle, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. So why don't we get into some of the chapters in your book that at least might increase the odds of those people who are just going to go ahead and uh, say, I still want to learn how to get my 15 well, minutes think, of fame. I, yeah, I, I'll be happy to talk about the, the key, you know, I think in a way, when I look back at it, maybe the title is somewhat of a misnomer because I, what I tried to say is, look, it's not a how-to book, but the, the game is what I try to uh, enlighten people is, is how, how I played the game. 
and what my tasks were, uh, the juxtaposition of where the client was when I met them, what influence that I had had on them. And those are the lessons that you learn. It's not really to tell you that I don't really have the answers to, um, but this is a playbook that I used. You know, this is my actual uh, I'm giving you the insiders. I'm trying to put you in the driver, you know, the passenger seat to see like what I did and how I did it and whether some of it worked or some of it didn't. And that's the the takeaway is, you know, if you read and you look at, you know, I think the exploration and the great thing about reading is you're exploring and getting people's insight. And it's not that the, that anyone author has all the answers. It's here are some, you know, some thoughts that you that might make sense to you. And if you, they apply, use them. And if you think they're bullshit or whatever, don't use them. You know, and I think that's in the spirit of the way I wrote the book was I don't I never uh, I haven't set myself up to say that I have the answers or that my playbook is the only way uh, to become famous. It's just that I I think I've been very fortunate and lucky to work with a lot of people. So I have a better understanding maybe of it than some other people do. Sure. And and what other example besides Richard Pryor can you give us uh, that you may have outlined in your book of someone that you feel that you manage very well through the ups and the downs? Um. I'm very proud of uh, my relationship with Bette Midler. Uh, Bette Midler was a big supporter of mine. Um, she really helped to my career, helped to blossom my career. One, because I was, um, you know, uh, I came into the business. There weren't a lot of black uh, people doing my job, people of color. Um, and so to have someone of her ilk and her level of fame uh, endorse me was really a big, uh, you know, and it really helped me to to expand my horizons in, in my different roles. Um, I was never her manager. Uh, I was her publicist, but I did work in, uh, you know, in a management capacity, even though I wasn't contract because she didn't have a manager. And she uh, did so many different things. She's so talented that I just got an opportunity to to learn so much because she did, you know, she did uh, film, television. She was a very successful live entertainer. Um, she recorded. She wrote books. So I got a chance to, you know, do all those things with her. And that, you know, part of uh, becoming good at any skill, having a developing a skill set is exposure and just, you know, having, you know, experience in, in the trenches instead of trying to, you know, make assumptions and assessments uh, from the sidelines. So she really put me in the trenches and, and I'm really proud of the thing. You know, I got to, you know, be to play a role in her, in the Rose, the launch of that film. And uh, she did her first big, I worked on all of her first, her first three big television specials I was involved with. Um, so it was, you know, to, to be able to work with a client who's multifaceted was a really big uh, opportunity for for me uh, with Beth. And we're still friends, and um, and I just really have a great appreciation and fondness of her. And then my ex-wife Vanessa Williams, I also think, um, you know, I came to her at a time of need um, as a publicist first originally um, when she ran into the whole mayhem with the uh, the pictures and penthouse magazine and having 
to uh, deal with being asked to resign as Miss America. And the thing about that story is historically, um, they the, the record is that she was forced to resign. And that's not true. She was asked to resign um, because they were afraid of um, whether they had the legal right to force her to, to resign. That's why they gave her the option. And when I came in, the option was, you have 72 hours to let us know what you're going to do. Are you going to resign or whatever? Uh, because their uh, pageant, which is what which drives the Miss America pageant every September, they have that pageant. It's a national. All their sponsors are geared towards supporting that broadcast. And that's what keeps that whole system going for the fifth, 60 year. At that time, she was the first uh, Black Miss America. So it was already 60 years in that they had developed a system around the pageant and that broadcast. And they didn't want anything to ruin that broadcast. And I didn't think that they would let her be on the broadcast no matter what. So I was brought in to what are we going to do? I, I didn't know her. I had never met her. I met a guy that was acting as her manager at the time, and he asked for my input. And I handled the press conference. Uh, I set up the press conference within 72 hours for her to make a decision without knowing what that decision was. Then the lawyers got involved, and it was a huge, huge uh, thing for me to undertake. And I had no I, I lived in L.A. at the time. I didn't realize that it was such a big deal in New York because she was Miss New York. And, you know, when I got the, the morning that I met her, I flew in on the red eye after having set up the press conference for a Monday morning that would start at the very end of the 72 hours. And I told the guy, we're going to do one announcement. We're going to announce to the world and the Miss America pageant can watch the, the press conference and they'll find out what you just what the decision was. Even though at that time, I didn't know what the decision was. Um, and there was like an encampment of about 400 media outside of her house um, going up to meet her for the very first time and her parents. And so that was a, a huge thing. And then, you know, we ended up um, I ended up becoming, you know, she did resign and I was happy about that. Um, I ended up, uh, we became friends, we became lovers, we got married, we have three kids together, I ended up being her manager. So um, that, you know, I look at that as, you know, taking something that was like in a really bad position, because I don't come from that school that any publicity is good publicity. And she really paid her dues uh, in terms of the negativity that that whole um, escapade uh, uh, brought into her life. Um, it took a, it took almost a decade for her to actually be in a position where she could actually use her own name because uh, she did a, a, sh a show on Broadway, um, Kiss of the Spider Woman. Yep. And up until, up until that time, there was never a media article that ran that didn't say uh, Vanessa Williams, former Miss America, Ruth nude pictures, blah, blah, blah. There was always like that tagline. And David Rich, who was a New York Times uh, Broadway critic, he wrote a review of her opening night, and it was the first time that he just called her Vanessa Williams. 
Vanessa Williams made her Broadway debut and he gave her a rave review. And I went, we, we finally reached that point where she got her life back, you know, just so that she could be called Vanessa Williams. And, you know, so that just to be able to be part of, you know, a growth and uh, to see a talent, she's always was talented. I didn't make her talented, um, but to have an influence on helping a young person really, you know, uh, give them the seeds of success in the business was, I consider that something that I'm very proud of. And, you know, she's been a great mother and we've raised three beautiful kids. So that's a huge part. It's something I'm really proud of uh, in that. So th those are two uh, that I'm very fond of. Um, and that's him that. You're like a fireman, you know, you're putting out all these fires along the way. <laughs> that's part of your job, I suppose. Is yeah, it, 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 it's unpredictable. You know, people say, well, you're, you're a crisis manager. Well, you know, I didn't, I don't, look for crisis <laughs> you, <know>? <laughs> <laughs> you just they fall in your lap and then you just try to do the you best deal with them you do the best you can yeah. Yeah. yeah well one of the interesting titles in your book uh you know is uh fame begets fame the more you get the harder it is to manage which is yeah. like kind of what you alluded to before about you know there's no playbook on fame once people get famous you know it's just like snowballs and takes off from there it's like how do i deal with this all Tell me about right. that chapter. Well, you know, the funny thing is um, fame begets fame. I just think that that's uh, sort of the, the natural evolution and process that once you get a little taste of fame and you can continue and sustain it, then it can lead to more fame or you may find out that you don't want to be famous at all. But that chapter was a um, I share or try to enlighten people a little bit about my own trajectory of my career and the things that a uh, few things that were important in the very embryonic stages uh, after I left Motown I went to Rogers and Cowan Public Relations and my very first client and the reason I got hired there is because I got an opportunity to work with Paul McCartney from the Beatles not and, too shabby uh, not too shabby it was a great way to start off I didn't meet Paul initially and uh, what happened was my Paul Block, who was a senior VP, longstanding um, publicist, very well respected in the business. He told me he didn't have a job for me. I was referred to him. I got laid off by Motown. And he said, I don't have a job for you, but uh, sometimes we use freelance writers and I'll give you a call if uh, something comes up. And that's how he ended up calling me up. And he said, hey, would you be interested in working on a project on Paul McCartney? I said, Paul McCartney? Of course. Yeah. What? What is it? And then I, I came in and, um, you know, he was he owned the Buddy Holly catalog. And so um, he was doing a uh, a week uh, event of events in the UK and he he needed a press kit put together so that was my initial task with Paul McCartney was to put it together and I did it you know pretty quickly it took me about three or four days to put it all together Paul submitted it to to Paul McCartney and he said hey Paul loves your work and uh we're gonna we're, he wants to use your, you know he wants to use it so that and as a result of that I ended up getting a job at Rogers and Cowan and the next four or five years of my career were really shaped during that time and that's when I got to work with you know Richard Pryor and Bette Middle a lot of very famous people during my uh my residence with uh Rogers and Cowan and, and probably the person that uh uh, I really was, uh, even after Paul McCartney, I, my first client that I signed 
my uh, as my own because I I wasn't I was a day to day guy. Paul was really running Paul McCartney, but I did a lot of the grunt work for Paul, and he also had another publicist in New York. But um, I got an opportunity to work with Quincy Jones, and Quincy Jones had just written the music for The Wiz, and he was one of the um, so I represented the Wiz soundtrack, and that was the first client that I brought to Rogers and Cowan. And I got to meet Quincy. The first time I met him, he invited me to have lunch at his house um, in Bel Air. And uh, his wife from the Mod Squad <laughs> was uh, there, and Peggy Lipton. And she opened the door, and I mean, I sat and talked to him for two hours. And he's just, he's such a, a, a special individual so talented and um so gracious and warm and so much of a mentor to me you know someone that i really looked up to and he you know crisscrossed throughout my career in many ways and fashions but mostly as a friend and one of the things i was fascinated by his story was that he was a very successful not famous composer uh, for motion pictures and television. And this was when, you know, he started in his early 20s. He was, a, you know, he was a trumpeter and uh, he wasn't a famous musician, but he, he he did enough. But because he was black, he didn't really get the kind of attention that you would, you know, was afforded to someone like Henry Mancini. So, there, so his early 20s and 30s, you have this really successful guy who's not famous. Um, and then when he turns 57, you know, and through from his early 30s to his 50s, he did a lot of very successful things. He had a record company. He, you know, he he was a vice president of um, of a record company. Then he had his own production company. Did so many things. Still wasn't really famous. But then when he got with Michael Jackson, that was really the height of his fame. They do. We are the world. It was actually yeah. we are the world did help to set him up. And, and it was after We Are the World that he ended up working with Michael on Michael's own record. But We Are the World, and that was also with Harry Belafonte, who just passed away not too long, uh, last week, who I also worked with. Um, that, that was the genesis. It was, it was Harry. It was uh, Quincy. It was Stevie, Lionel, and Michael. And that was really the core group of people that, and then, you know, Quincy got all those other artists to be a part of We Are the World. But it was just fascinating that you just don't know. One of the things that I, I mentioned in the book is every client I ever represented had took a different path. And you never know when fame is going to come. So I always say, don't, don't wait, you know, don't wait on it because it'll never show up when you want it, you know. And I don't think Quincy expected it to, uh, to have that moment in his life at 57 where he became globally one of the most famous people on the planet. You know, hope for all of us then, huh? He's, he yeah, did it to 57. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's uh, another person. We were talking about Bette Midler and Vanessa and, and other people, but he, he definitely was a, a huge influence on my life, professional life, and also just someone that I just treasured being in his presence because he had so many great stories and so much insight. And uh, so I really appreciate my time with him. So you gave some great examples of um, uh, Vanessa Williams and uh, also, of course, Richard Pryor uh, in terms of, uh, you know, um, fame being uh, sort of the more you get, the, the harder it is to manage. Any other examples like that? Um, probably the worst case scenario was Rick James, uh, who really, um, you know, he came from 
he had a very uh, troubled childhood and uh, and he worked his way to become famous. He was on the brink of really becoming famous. But for him, fame meant uh, entitlement. And he put himself above people. Um, he created a lot of bad blood. You know, his his the way that he treated people, a lot of people didn't really want him to win, at least in the industry. Um, I mean, he always had a great fan base, but I think that his fame was toxic for him, and it was he self-destructed. Some, in some ways, similar to Richard Pryor, but Richard Pryor gained far more fame than than Rick James did. And Rick James is just if you look at what he had, like he was like meteoric. He came from. Uh, you know, when I worked with him, he was he released the album Street Songs, and he maybe had one more successful album after that. So he had like a three to five year threshold of fame, and then he he lost it almost completely. And it was very sad because I know that he really wanted it. Um, he he was someone who was obsessed with fame and all the you know the hoopla that goes with it, all the perks and everything. He loved being you know, um, being the king of, uh, of everything, you know, and, uh, he was very demanding and, um, and I just think that he, he's, he's a case of, you know, if you did a case study on him, he's someone who really did not know how to manage his fame. So in closing, uh, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of my reputation. You know, um, I've never been sued for, stealing or cheating anybody. Um, I've always approached the business with a great deal of integrity. I've always worked really hard. Um, I've always tried to be honest with my clients and authentic and transparent. And I think that's much better than being a, uh, you know, one of those people like a yes man. Um, I, I, I've learned through the business and I do mention in the book that in my earlier stages, I did things that, you know, I wasn't uh, ethically uh, in line with. And then as I got older and more experienced, there were different things that I wasn't willing to compromise. You told a good example of that in the book, actually, uh, with uh, Richard Pryor, when he didn't want to show up to an appearance and uh, you had to go with his bodyguard and uh, actually talk to Muhammad Ali. Yes. Yeah, that was one <laughs> of you, the worst. You are not proud of that. You only had five minutes with Muhammad, but yeah. you were not proud afterwards of being uh, having to tell Richard Zilla, you know, live. Yeah, because I, I, I knew Muhammad Ali a little bit. You know, I'd worked with him on a different project, on a couple of projects. So having to lie to one of my heroines is like, that was not comfortable. So I, I think that, you know, in any business, you, you have to, you know, uh, my motivation is to is to to sustain you know my reputation and be happy with who I am as a person in my life you know where i'm i'm not i'm not uh at uh i don't want to be uh a slave to other people and what their desires are no matter how famous they are or whatever and you have to be able to walk away from situations that that don't fit you that aren't complimentary that aren't healthy for you to be involved with and and i think that i've tried to do my best to you know stay true to who i am and who i think i need to be to you know to have a, a sense of sanity in my own life you know so, uh, Ramon, the goals for the next five, 10 years, and how could people learn more about you? Uh, well, you know, I have a website. I'm on social media. You can find me on Instagram or Facebook. 
Uh, I want to write some more. That was one of the main reasons why I did this book. Um, I want to write more. And I, I just, um, I'm doing less and less management per se, because I think like there isn't anyone out there that I really feel like I need to manage or want to manage. So I'm just trying to, you know, um, follow my own dreams. And I think, uh, you know, I've been a service person for over 40 years and I'm just trying to service myself now, you know, in the twilight of my life. And I just want to try to do things that I'm passionate about and that I believe in. Um, and, you know, I just want to continue working uh, and and being self-motivated and to accept challenges in my life that I think uh, bring self-reward and self-fulfillment. You know, I don't think of myself as ever retiring as long as I can my mind is is right um I just want to continue to I love the entertainment business uh, and uh you know I love winning well I can tell you that your authenticity your warmth and your integrity really shines through and I want to thank you today for being on the motivation show thank you so much I really enjoyed talking to you If you would like to inquire about having Eli motivate your team, speak at your event, or coach you personally for massive success, email the motivation show at gmail.com. That's the motivation show at gmail.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.